In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have a super amazing guest here with me. Larry, how are you? Pam, pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our connection this morning and to giving value to all of your listeners out there. So it's great to be on The Underdog. It's so great to have you, Larry. I mean, you've done some pretty remarkable work throughout your lifetime and have such an interesting background. And along with your newest book, 126 Days and 11 Minutes, which Mm -hmm. I know we'll get to, I almost don't even know where to start with questions because you're that awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when when you've made it to 65 years, you can reflect back on maybe some things that went right, some that went wrong, but it's all (laughs) in the journey. It's all in the life experience. Yeah. I love it, Larry. So, I mean, I would say, you know, what's been the biggest, what has made the biggest impact on you in your journey to where you are today? And I know that's a loaded question, but there's so much to you. So I figured I start with an open-ended question and you could flow whichever way you like. I'll start with faith. I think in my life, I've always been a man of faith. I happen to be a Christian and I've always been, uh, I've had a faith-centered life, meaning that I believe in God, believe he has a plan for my life. And when good things happen, you feel blessed for that and you're grateful. And when adversity strikes, as tough as it is, you can look back on that and that helps you get stronger and you learn from it. And on my journey, and I think many of us, I don't think we seek adversity or seek trauma or or seek tragic events, but when they do happen in context, you can look back at them and find out that they have a purpose. So faith center, number one. Number two is fitness. I did start at an early age, at age 10, working out. I was inspired by an Olympic athlete named Al Orcher, who was a decathlete who won four gold medals in four different Olympics. And I grew up on Long Island. He happened to work at Grumman. He was, he, in those days, Pam, Olympic athletes didn't get paid. They worked regular jobs and they worked out after work. And they had a few few perks here and there, but Al Order was a big strength guy and he inspired me. I went to some kind of lecture or seminar he did after one of his gold medals. I think it was in 64. Yes. After Tokyo. And I got inspired to start lifting weights. That's how my fitness started. And I've always treasured that, cherished it, and then also got me into athletics. So faith is a big thing. Fitness is another one. Friendships is another one and family. I'll say family and friendships, the ability to be able to communicate and commit to people and to collaborate with people just like we're doing today. I found that that's that's another, you know, real centering of my life. So faith and fitness and family. And then finally, I think fun. Fun being whatever you decide to do, fun and I'll say slash fulfillment. So whatever your talents you have, and I've had some of those, being able to use those in whatever endeavor you choose. 
I was lucky in that a avocation became a vocation and getting into the fitness career eventually. You know, so having fun and being fulfilled, using your God-given talents and uh, making life uh, a joy rather than a struggle. Although we do have times where we do struggle. So those are maybe my four pillars, if you will. I love that. I love that you've got the four pillars sort of down. And I mean, so throughout your younger years, I would say, what was your biggest source of inspiration at at that time, aside from Faith? Was there a particular person that you mentioned the athlete, but? Yeah, I, um, I had the privilege. I was very blessed. My dad was a very, very accomplished and acclaimed fine artist. He lived to 99 years old. Wow. And Sal did volunteer work. He, he was a fine artist. He worked in New York City in commercial art. He also had his own art company. But he also gave back. And how he gave back, he was a World War II veteran. So he spent four years in Sicily and Italy, survived. Came back, got married to my mother, four children. I was three of four. And dad lived a very, very interesting life. But how he gave back was, in the late, late 50s, he got into a program that did artwork for the U.S. Navy, and this was as a civilian. So he dedicated some of his time. He traveled to Florida, and he met a Navy captain. This was a very important thing. It's who you meet in life and the connections. And the guy's name was Ken Schacht. Ken was a Naval Academy graduate. He went to Annapolis and graduated in 1935, was a World War II hero, okay, in the submarine force, also was a prisoner of war in Japan during the war. Anyway, he hit it off with my dad, and we had the ability and the opportunity to visit Ken at Annapolis. Later on in Ken's career, he was finishing his career as a captain in the Navy, we would go to his house in Annapolis every summer. So I got exposed to the Naval Academy when I was eight, nine, 10 years old. And I really loved the academy. And it laid the foundation for me to want to go to school there. So I would say my dad was a very, very important influence in my life. And then that led to meeting Ken Schacht. And that kind of laid the foundation for me to want to go to the school at the academy for college. So that was really important at an early age. Wow. So the Naval Academy, so that almost played a role. And then you getting into fitness too. I mean, along with the Olympic, oh, yeah. you know, wow. It did. You know what that what happened, Pam, and it's funny how this is flowing. I went to Annapolis for four years right out of high school. I was 17, grew up in New York, went down there. The greatest thing about the academy was, and it's still this way, every state in the union has to have representation at the school. So I ended up having friends from Arizona, Washington State, Ohio, Texas, you know, places I never had friends from these states before. So it becomes a real melting pot and you get a real experience to learn to deal with people, right? From a social point of view, because everybody's a little different, you know? So that that was really an awesome experience from that, you know, side of things at the academy. And then finally, when I graduated, I chose a ship because you had a, uh, after you leave the Naval Academy, you have a six-year commitment to be in the Navy. So I chose the West Coast because I wanted to get to the West Coast because that was the Mecca of health and fitness. So I was able to get a ship out of San Diego. And one of my goals was if I was going to eventually get into the fitness world, California was the way to do it. So the Navy was the conduit by which I was able to get out to San Diego. And I've been blessed to be here now for 43 years. Oh my gosh, because I was going to ask you how you went from East Coast to West Coast. And wow, 
Isn't it funny though, how life, you know, because I always say this, I'm like, there's stepping stones. And sometimes you don't think that one specific decision will lead you to where you're supposed to be. Like you said, a conduit. Because for me, I was in the restaurant world up until I was 21, right? But I didn't think, you know, my waitressing experience or, you know, my operations and in food management and all these things was something to really be proud of, right? Like, cause I was like, you know, how restaurants aren't really are looked down upon almost like waitressing. A lot of people don't put it in their resume and stuff like that. Cause they think it's something that's not, but it actually leads you to where you're supposed to be. I'm like, my restaurant experience literally helped me get my construction experience because I, it's a lot of logistics. It's the same thing, working well under pressure, learning how to pivot last minute. So I just find it remarkable what you said, you know, like sometimes you just don't know where those conduits will lead you. And, you know, sometimes you may think it's by chance and, and it could be. I, I don't think connections are just random. I think they're always for a reason. Our connection is for a reason. However, making a choice to be somewhere can then lead, quote, maybe to a chance meeting. But you've made the powerful choice to do that. You made the choice to get into the restaurant business. You know, you were, you had some guidance from your dad, et cetera. Now you didn't have to choose to do that, but you did. And because you did, it led to other things, to additional lessons learned. And, you know, I'm sure in your journey too, as to mine, hard work and enthusiasm and attitude go a long way, Pam, doesn't it? They do, they do, even in the face of adversity, which leads me to sort of my next question for you. Like, yeah. Some of your biggest challenges sort of growing up. So as you were going through the Naval Academy or just like throughout your entire experience in the early years. You know, the early years, I would say the first adversity, which I, I noticed, I don't, want to, I don't know if I call it adversity, but it was just something when I was in high school between 1969, and 1973, there was a lot of drugs, like the drug culture had started. And unfortunately, my older brother got involved in that. And I saw how that was ruining his life. And, and there was other friends too. There was a lot of talented people, talented athletes, smart people, you know, that got into the drug culture and I saw them ruin their lives. But I looked at that as something that, that I definitely didn't want to do. But when I look back, that was some adversity because you know, it affected you socially, but I recognized that I, I had to make a decision. If you could go down that road, you know, good things are not going to happen. And as a young man, I stayed away from that. So seeing other people kind of get involved in the wrong lifestyle, you know, was, I'm not saying it was traumatic, but it was something that as a young person, you have to recognize, at least I did. But the big adversity was after I graduated the Naval Academy, the first big trauma, and, and this was very sad. It was the day after I graduated, my, my entire family came down for the ceremony. And in short, I was driving my sister, my oldest sister, Barbara, she was 28, and my aunt, who was my dad's sister, Teresa, to the airport. And sadly and tragically, we never made it, okay? I was in a really horrific car accident and they died in the car. I was 21 years old driving. I survived. Uh, that was tough, Pam. That was a tough one. Now I was very, very lucky. Cuts and bruises. Not making a big drama over this, but I had to stay on track. And the best thing that happened to me was to leave New York, get to the West Coast, and start my naval career. That really was instrumental in getting me to move forward as hard as it was. I didn't have time 
to stay at home if I had been severely injured, who knows where it would have went. But that was a tough one to handle. And, you know, over the years, you know, that's where my faith comes in. It happened for a reason. I can't explain it. But that was significant. Okay, as a young man, you learn a lot that life could be changed in a minute. And um, sometimes things happen, accidents happen. They can be explained sometimes and sometimes they cannot. And but that was a, a tough one to have to overcome at an early age. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man, I'm so, so sorry to hear that, Larry. And, you know, the, the fact that you kept your head on tight, you know what I mean? And just kept moving. That's after something like that, you know, how did you sort of refocus your energies to just going West Coast? Because I find that, you know, when a trauma like that happens, how do you cope with that? And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that will somewhat understand what you're what you went through I cannot imagine but how do you move past that like what something you know because maybe there's somebody out there that was listening right now that's going through something similar yeah I I think three things helped me when I got to San Diego the next thing I knew I was in Australia New Zealand the ship went on a seven-month deployment uh the captain of the ship was awesome you know he said hey Lair I know what you've been through if I didn't think you can do the job here or if you think you couldn't do it, I wouldn't have accepted you to come aboard ship now due to the circumstances. So you're a member of the crew. He was very supportive. My teammates, guys who had already been on the ship, there was three guys who were one year ahead of me. All of them happened to have gone to the Naval Academy a year before, and Phil and Jim and Mike, and they were awesome. They were awesome guys to be around. So I got into a very positive environment. Mm -hmm. And then I was very busy, Pam. I didn't have time. You know, you go into a new environment. I'm 21 years old, 22 years old. You're, you're in charge of 35 guys on the ship. I mean, you got to perform, you know, you just, so I didn't have time. I don't know. Maybe you could say I didn't have time to grieve, but I, I could tell you. And then the other thing was, I was, it was change of scenery, support from people. And the third thing, I wanted to do something to respond to the lives that were lost, in this case, my aunt, my sister. So you can get inspired to do things with emotion. Sometimes that can work for you for a time. And then sometimes that can work against you because then you could break down. But in in this case, I used the loss of their lives as inspiration to move forward. And those three things were instrumental at the time. They really were. I just find it amazing how you took your pain into purpose and you just kind of went and kept going and kept grinding, which, which I adore about you. And I mean, post-naval career, what was the pivot? How, how was your exit? Yeah. There? yeah you know, it was interesting. There were, there were some circumstances that happened that it was never my destiny to be as an active uh, naval officer for a full career. So mm-hmm. I, I did leave at the six year mark and I stayed in San Diego. I met a woman, I got married. Okay. She was a nurse. We're married for 25 years. We had two beautiful children. So that connection was made in the early 80s. And um, I decided that, okay, I want to get into the health and fitness career area. And I thought I wanted to be a uh, wellness coordinator at a corporation. So I went into this master's program, two different programs at University of California at San Diego for exercise science, fitness instruction. Also, it was a master's program in corporate fitness administration. So I I did those two programs my last two years in the Navy when I had shore duty to prepare myself to enter that. And it wasn't in the cards right away because 
San Diego didn't have a lot of big corporations other than one or two, and those spots were pretty filled. So that path, it was like I was stalled. I did all that, and then I didn't have anywhere to go. So I got married. I fell back on working as a systems analyst for a small uh, defense contractor, Summit Research Corporation. I did that. And while I did that, I learned a lot of lessons about getting into the business world. And then I also went back to school to get my master in business administration at the University of San Diego. So I used the time wisely when I was working. And then also I wanted to learn more about business. And that happened mostly through the 80s. And then the late 80s, I got into the fitness world and decided to get into personal training. And that's how it was launched. I, By the late 80s, I felt I can make a living as a personal trainer. And I had enough. I wasn't so risk averse that that wasn't going to happen. So that's what I did. And then that launched uh, my entry as a fitness professional, which, you know, is at 32 years now. And it's been a blessed profession, but that's kind of how it happened in, in a nutshell. That's so awesome. And then eventually that led you to the life coaching space, right? If I'm correct. It, it did. It went from, you know, if I could summarize my fitness career as 10 years as a remote trainer, going to apartment houses, condos, corporations, anywhere. And I went, I was anywhere throughout San Diego County. And then in a club environment as a fitness director, and that was for another eight years. And then finally I got into, I met a guy named Todd Durkin. Todd's one of the bigger names in the fitness industry. And uh, I met Todd at a seminar. And in 2007, he started the Todd Durkin Mastermind Program. It's a business and life coaching program for fitness professionals. So at that time, I was at a juncture with some experience behind me to get into the coaching. So by 2007, 2008, I decided to go that direction. As Todd's program grew, I grew with it. And it's like anything else, Pam, you probably have some experience. If you can connect with a young company while it's starting to grow, that's, that's good timing. It was great timing for me in getting into the coaching work at that juncture of my career. Yeah. That's amazing. And you've been a life coach since? I've been coaching now 12 full years since 2009. Yeah. Under the Todd Durkin Mastermind brand. And uh, we've grown from 12, oh, I don't know, we're into the 200s now as far as number of people we work with. So it's been a real rewarding career. And then I've also continued training on some level, but less so, especially this year with COVID. But the training or the coaching, life and business coaching, has, has been my primary activity over the past 12 years. Yeah. That's amazing. So what has been the number one experience throughout your coaching career in the last decade, would you say? Last decade is impacting people positively and seeing young people such as yourself, not necessarily all young people, we work we work with people from 25 years old all the way to 65. It just depends on what their fitness journey is mm -hmm. and how they want to mold their career. But the, um, the inspiring things that everybody is doing out there to change lives and how I've been able to contribute to that, um, not only through my own coaching, but through coaching through my affiliation with Todd Durkin and other great fitness professionals. I've learned so much. And it's that, um, and you know this, Pam, too, right? It's the five people that you surround yourself with yeah. uh, professionally and personally that help elevate your life yeah. personally and professionally. And that's been a real, real great, great experience and continues to be. 
you know, even though I'm, you know, I'm 65 now, I've done this for a while, but that continues to be a source of inspiration. Also working with people who are focused, mission-driven, and have a vision, you know, for their personal lives and also their um, professional lives. That's been super rewarding. And, you know, it's just been positive and being around positive people who want to achieve something in life and use their God-given talents. It's been, that's been a wonderful experience. I love that. I love that. And you're so full of love and such good energy, which I absolutely adore, which speaking of the word love, now I've Mm -hmm. got to ask you about your latest and greatest, your book, 126 days and 11 minutes with Gail. So I would love to hear about what motivated you to sort of write that book and how that experience sort of started. Well, the backdrop of the story is, and you know, the underdog podcast, perhaps Gail was, I don't want to say the ultimate underdog. However, the space she was in, perhaps she was. And, And the backstory of the book is of 126 days, 11 minutes, our love story. And it was a love story is two actively aging seniors in their 60s meet each other online and against all odds fall madly in love while one of them is battling stage four breast cancer and had been for four years and that was Gail. We decide to love each other anyway and to have a relationship anyway and to focus on the today rather than the yesterday And Gail was 68, I was 64. So we had a few yesterdays behind us. (laughs) And not look too far into the future. Focus on the today. And in the process, we had a very honest, we had a very compassionate, we had a very loving relationship. And um, I will say, when I look back on it, we loved each other unconditionally. And the lesson I think we both learned is... It is better to have loved with loss rather than never to have risked to love at all. And, and it gets back to choice. Gail, um, you know, when I met her, that's the backstory of the book. Why I wrote it was to share the incredible lessons that I learned from Gail. She was a very colorful lady. She had been married three times. But when we met, she was single for 18 years. She battled cancer. She had had surgery, radiation, chemo, the whole thing. But she did not let that deter her. She did not let cancer, she didn't live in the shadow of cancer. She made a powerful choice, getting back to that choice again, Pam, to embrace life and love to the end. When I met Gail, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't counting days. I didn't think she was going to die tomorrow. I certainly didn't think she was going to pass away four months after I met her. However, The book and what I share in the book is inspirational on the powerful choice Gail made and that I made to both love each other, even when society says, you know what, somebody's struggling, you know, somebody has cancer, don't go there, you're not going to get anything out of it, it's going to be a sad experience, and I, I looked at a bigger picture and I think we both did. That's incredible, right, because you had mentioned to me before that you, going into it, you knew that about her she was she was fully transparent with you and she told she was from the start from the start and I remember when I first met her she you know she had told me a story talk about underdog podcast that she she was online and wanted to meet somebody she was still putting herself out there 
And she did tell me that first meeting at dinner, you know, Larry, if I couldn't be a woman, I wouldn't be here in front of you. I just wanted to be clear about this. And I'm not an invalid. But she had told me stories. She had gone out on connects, you know, try to meet a new man, whatever. And, you know, one instance, a guy got up from the table after she told him her story, put $50 on the table and said, you know, Gail, this is too much for me. I, I can't handle this, you know, so here's money for the dinner and got up and left. Now, I'm not trying to judge the gentleman, but, you know, when you put yourself out there, when you battling stage four, some of these things could happen. Okay. But she was always very honest, always what she had been through. She had had a single mastectomy. She, she told me, she says, look, if this freaks you out, uh, I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> And it, it didn't, but I'm just saying she was very, very honest. And that's the way Gail was always standing in her truth. Wow. Wow. And did she ever mention what was her motivation of wanting to put herself out there? Yeah, it was a couple of things. Mm. The cover of the book, there's a picture of a couple doing the Argentine tango. That yes. is a photography. That is a picture that Gail took. She was a professional photographer for 33 years. Wow. And she was an Argentine tango dancer. She had been, wow. when I knew her, for 12 years. Wow. And she felt... Tango, the Argentine tango now, not ballroom tango. They're, they're two are different. Yeah. It was a lifestyle for her. And it's a lifestyle that is based on the man leading the dance and the woman responding. Now, the response is not a blind response. If the male is a lousy lead, you will not get a great response from the woman. <laughs> and it always starts from the embrace and tango is about the embrace and oh. how that connects both man and woman and but in that whole lifestyle the man leads the woman responds and she felt she let me lead in the relationship so she put herself out there and she said hey if I could find a good leader I'm willing to respond to him and you know she didn't find too many over the years she had when I met Gail, she had not had a relationship for five and a half years, due mainly, I, I think, to her cancer. She had battled it four years and it changed her life a lot. Sometimes she physically couldn't do it. But the reason I go back to tango, she always kept tango in her life. It kept her alive. So even when the chemo and the surgeries, when she could get back to tango, she stayed with the tango. And that carried over into her love relationship. And she always said the two were different. Tango dancing, Larry, is not making love on the dance floor. It's a different thing. But I do believe that's what gave her the inspiration, put herself out there. And she wanted a man in her life too, but under that type of storyline, if you will. Interesting. And yeah. you, what was your motivation in, or like what sort of sparked you to be like, all right, let me get out there. Yeah, I had had two other relationships over the years. I had been divorced eight years, nine mm -hmm. years, and they were respectful relationships, but they just didn't work out for long term. So my goal for 2020 being a coach, we set a theme for the year. And I set my theme for 2020 as do something significant. That was my theme for 2020. And the other exercise we do, Pam, is what we call a 10 forms of wealth. Mm. And we score ourselves 10 aspects of our life, financial, career, adventure, spiritual, physical, et cetera. And one of the areas, wealth areas, is love. You huh. score ourselves from zero being really bad to 10, it can't get better than this. Well, my love was about a three. 
So I said, okay, I'll get back. I had tried online dating before and I said, let me get back into it. So I did. And uh, six days into the new year, that's where I met Gail. So it was intentional for me to be online and to meet somebody. And then Gail also similarly made the choice to pursue that avenue. And so was it by chance we met perhaps, but I think it was the choice we both make to be there. Mm-hmm. So that's, that it was intentional for me to improve my love, wealth aspect of my life. Huh. It's, that's so interesting that you mentioned mm-hmm. that it was intentional that you were there and that, you know, that she was too. So online dating, what's your first date? Mm-hmm. What was the first date like? First date was interesting. She took a wrong turn. This is in the book. She, uh, <laughs> she took a wrong turn. It was, a, it was a cloudy, rainy night, and she hadn't been to this restaurant before. And she texted me, said, I'm running late. I took a couple wrong turns. So I said, I said, Gail, I said, I'm going to, I'll leave the restaurant. I was already there. And I'll, I'll stand on the corner. And I gave her the intersection streets. So I stood on the corner and I saw her blue SUV approaching. She told me she had a blue SUV. So I did a hitchhiking motion with my right thumb as she was approaching. So she stops the car, the window comes down. She goes, need a ride, handsome? I said, yeah, I'm late for dinner. And we hit it off from that moment on. And um, it was was great. We spent three hours in the restaurant. And uh, I talk about it in the book because the the book is uh, written by days, day one Mm -hmm. through day 126. Each day has a title or a theme. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that first encounter. And um, I was really captivated by Gail. And, you know, of course, being a Leo in the astrological chart, it was one juncture during dinner. She goes, oh, Larry, she goes, you're so much more handsome than your pictures online. I said, you know how really to get to my heart. And um, she was very honest. And she had this strawberry blonde hair and she had these sky blue eyes. And she was just, um, I was just, the best word is captivated by her. And then um, after we finished in in the restaurant, you know, I asked her, I said, I'd like to continue to see you. And she said, well, that could be arranged and where it all started. And uh, I was very captivated by her courage and her honesty. And uh, I was certainly physically attracted to Gail, but there was just something about her I wanted to discover more. Mm. And she laid the table for that very easy interaction. It was very, very easy. For sure. And I mean, some people may be curious as to this, but like during this chapter in your life, you chose to focus so intently on being vulnerable, present, Mm -hmm. romantic, and loving. Did something happen in your past to make you want to be this man now, causing you to feel that you needed to make up for lost time? Insightful question. I, um, in looking back, I was looking to be able to connect with a woman mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I just never had that. And obviously it takes two. Okay. It's not because there was a certain woman that that's why it was her fault that I wasn't able to connect on those levels, but I, I just hadn't had that. Mm -hmm. And I decided I did, I made the conscious decision that that's what I wanted. And that's what I was looking to develop. And I felt with Gail, I was able to do that. She, for the first time, I was very comfortable in all aspects there and in talking about all those aspects of a relationship and to basically nourish each other physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. 
Uh, we were both mature. We had had life experience. Mm -hmm. If it was years back, would have we have been able to do that? You know, Pam, I, I don't know if I could say that, but we both had a lot of things. You know, she had the stage four diagnosis. I had been diagnosed stage one, wow. colorectal cancer. So I could empathize with her on getting a diagnosis, certainly never to her extent. So we had some things in common, common ground, and we were willing, you know, to really put it all out there. And you talk about important things, trust, honesty, trust, intimacy, then romance, then love, right? right? If you don't have that honesty and build trust and communicate that trust and then build that intimacy without that, you can't have romance without romance, there's no love. So you'll find the book talks about all of those and how there was romance in, in our relationships. And it did. She was vulnerable in what she was going through. And I was always honest with her too, what I was going through. So there wasn't any one thing other than in my past, never having those four aspects of a relationship fully covered or fully experienced. Right. And I mean, the, the fact that you willingly allowed yourself to become vulnerable, I think was a huge component of all of this, because I think that that takes so much strength to be like, listen, I know what I'm up against, but I'm yeah. going to try and I'm going to love anyway. Which That's very important, Pam, in any relationship. What you just said is being vulnerable. When you're vulnerable with yourself and with others, I think I was able to love Gail unconditionally and she me is because we loved ourselves unconditionally first. That's where vulnerability does come in and self-awareness. And she told me that. She goes, Larry, I, I can't love anybody unconditionally unless I love myself first unconditionally. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's super important. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the, I always say this quote, but how are you going to win if you're not right within, right? And that, I think that that's so yeah. important, you know, and the best relationship advice I ever heard in my entire life was the person that you're with should make your light shine brighter. Meaning you've already need to have that light, right? within you like you said that self-love and your partner should always reflect that upon you. Oh, you you hit the nail on the head and i share it in the book it was a dinner we were having at some indian restaurant gail had lived in indonesia i think during her second marriage but in any case mm -hmm. she told me that at dinner i think it was that day you know larry i'm just shining the light you're shining on me back to you so in a relationship if you're shining mm -hmm. light and you just said it on another person she or he will reflect that light back if in fact you you're consistently shining on he or she you know and that's that's a big deal it really is and that's the secret to having a good relationship is um is being able to do that for each other yeah right and i mean i think not just on you know with your experience with gail it wasn't just love too but you became an advocate for her as well throughout her care and all the process yeah closest person to her with that yeah it's interesting how linear it turned out to be it was 126 days that I knew her and the 11 minutes you know if you read the book people will understand what the 11 minutes is about but um, it was 63 days where she was relatively healthy and able to do a lot you know the, the book is fun I we, we did a lot in those 63 days I talk about it it's great you experience it with me and then when the cancer came back, moved to her brain, we had 63 days 
of a traditional hospital stay and then 44 days in an inpatient hospice. And that's after COVID hit. So it does change from the relationship we had when we were out doing a lot of things to when it returned. So it's inspirational from a fun, loving side and what we were able to do together. And then also from a different side where I did have to become and help her become her health advocate, where she was gonna die, where she was gonna transition and how to create and care for her along with the inpatient hospice staff, which was awesome. You know, I will always say this, the Sharp Hospice Foundation Parkview Hospice Home was just awesome. Mm -hmm. It was a four bed facility and they cared for Gail, kept her out of pain. And then I had, was part of seeing her every day for 44 days. How was I gonna uplift her being her advocate and taking care of her, okay? And that became a part of it. And that was part of the story, it's shared in the book. And I had my moments uh, being vulnerable. I share that in the book of what I was going through in the process of helping her. I was very, very transparent about that. Right, right. And I mean, if you could share maybe one experience of what that was like without giving away the book, because I want everybody to buy it. Yeah. Let me tell you one one thing I created, and, and people always come into your lives to help you through the uh, challenge. And I, I do share some people who came into my life in, in the journey, especially during the 44 days in hospice. But I'm going to tell you just a quick story. And it was, um, it was in the book. And the title of the day was Lydia Says Goodbye. It was a very pointed moment. It was about a week before Gail transitioned. And one of her caregivers, they had a registered nurse, mm-hmm. uh, assistant nurse, and a homemaker. And the homemakers did the showering, combing of the hair, all that stuff. And Lydia was one of Gail's homemakers for 44 days. Well, at that point, maybe 38 days. And she said, it was at the end of the day. And she said, Larry, I'd like to say goodbye to Gail. By that time, Gail could not see or speak because her brain was shutting down. The cancer had gone to her brain. And Lydia came in and she went up to Gail and I said, well, Lydia, and she says, I'm not working for the next two weeks, Larry. Um, I won't be here. I want to say goodbye to Gail. So she went in. And she held her hand, Pam, and she said, Gail, thank you for letting me take care of you. You're a beautiful person. And you, you witnessed something like that. That is just pure humanness from one person to another. Mm-hmm. Thanking the person for letting me take care of you. I saw Gail, I, I think Gail smiled a little bit. I, I know she was aware who it was, but it was a very poignant moment And there were many in hospice of the people who work at these places. Pam, it is just incredible, all of them. And I do remember that specifically, that is pure humanity. And that's sometimes, thank God, Gail was in a place that, you know, she was around that as she transitioned. And I remember that, I will always remember that moment. There were many others, but that one in particular was, was extremely poignant to me and touching to me because it's dying in America. A lot of times it's, it's secret. We don't talk about it. It's taboo. It's, you know, but this is what goes on in some of these inpatient hospice and also in the home hospice in the home mm-hmm. and how these people help loved ones care for their loved ones who are transitioning. And that particular day was special. Yeah, that's shared in the book. I love that. 
And I mean, that's so beautiful. I, I felt that when you were talking about when she mm -hmm. held her hand and that's absolutely beautiful. And I mean, all the experiences that you sort of had throughout the way. Now, what practical advice would you give someone who is in a similar role as you of being an advocate for the patients? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who've experienced that. I myself have as well. Yeah, you know, Pam, two things. You know, when if a person's admitted to the hospital, if it's stage four cancer it, and it's becoming the end of the cancer journey, it's important to ask questions and to know the needs of the patient. Take your own ego out of it and make sure you listen to what the patient wants, okay? Because if not, you could be treated then like as a number. Okay, there's no more surgery, there's no more chemo, there's no more radiation. Okay, we gotta move you on. Where are you gonna die? Okay, you're going home. And in Gail's situation, there was a lot of considerations. And I share these in the book. She didn't really have a home to go to. You'll get that in the book as to why. She wanted to look at all options and as to her, which would best suit her needs. And I do share this in the book. You have to ask questions. You have to be persistent. Gail, what she always said is standing in her truth. So mm -hmm. do understand the patient's needs. Don't make assumptions and do your absolute best to ask questions so those needs could be met in the best possible way. I had COVID also to deal with, or we did, not just I, and where she was gonna stay, how that affected hospice. You must ask questions. You must be persistent in pursuing the best solution for the person, right? And that, that I would always recommend. Once in a hospice environment, think about how you could bring everyday life into the transitioning process of the patient. I used music. Uh, Gail had a garden view of the home she was in, fresh air, flowers, you try power of touch. As a person transitioned, they might lose their eyesight or ability to speak, but they could still feel and mm -hmm. they could still hear in most cases. So use the power of touch, hold their hand and also talk to them. Sometimes you have to talk and whisper and, and things, but they could still hear. And so we had music night. I share this all in the book. I had different themes. I did my best to, um, to keep, you know, how does transitioning become routine? I don't know if you could ever make it routine. Is death routine? No. But you could bring in elements of joy to the process. And other people will help you do that as well. Okay, you just don't have to do that yourself. But consciously do that. Uh, tell a person you love them. Uh, listen to them. They'll laugh. They'll cry. Treat each day as a blessing as you go through that process. So those are some of the things I would recommend. I love that, Larry. And you have such a diverse experience throughout your lifetime. I mean, you the life coaching, you have got Gail, you've got the naval training, you've got all these beautiful things and these experiences that you've had. Now, what would be the biggest piece of advice mm -hmm. that you would that your younger self, your your older self would tell your younger self based on what you know now? Boy, that's an interesting question. The underdog podcast says don't let society or what's the norm. Yeah. Like what people think you should do. Don't just go on that road. Be your own person. Looking back, I always did a lot of self-development work, self-awareness work. And that is really important to have a strong sense of self. Mm -hmm. When you have a strong sense of self, who you are, I'm not saying be selfish. If you have a strong sense of who you are, 
you will be able to lead your own life. Now, leading your own life may be affiliating with another brand, like I did in my coaching business with Todd Durkin. Yeah. That worked for me. It might be you just create your entire own brand and that's something, that's how you want to lead. You could lead in different ways, but be the underdog. Don't be the person who just blends in and just follows mindlessly. Lead in your life. You know, early on, I shared earlier, I saw some of my friends go down a bad path with drugs and including my late older brother who eventually took his own life at 53. I didn't want to go down that road. It doesn't make me better, but do consciously lead from your core. Gail always said, always stand in your truth. Mm -hmm. So in your life, stand in your truth, have some convictions and core values. Don't compromise on those and have a good sense of self-awareness. And with, with that, you will, I like to say substance seeks substance. If you do that, you will attract people into your lives that play key roles yep. when you connect with them in your journey forward. So that's some of what I would say and looking back. I love that, Larry. You're so awesome. And I'm so thankful to have you here today. Now the rest of the world needs to know where to find your awesomeness in the book. Okay. too. We have um, the, the book is available on Amazon and Kindle 126 days, 11 minutes, our love story. And uh, it's in paperback version or Kindle. The audio version will be available on Audible. If you consume content audio, yep. I had two awesome voice narrators do the audio version. So look for Audible. I will make an announcement on that. If you want to email me directly, email me and I will answer all emails, lindiviglia at gmail.com. So that's L-I-N-D-I-V-I-G-L-I-A at gmail.com. You could, you could find me on Facebook at Lawrence Indiviglia, Facebook at Lawrence Indiviglia. And uh, I gave you my direct email and Twitter. I am at Larry Indsight, I-N-D site. That's the name of my company, Indsights for Life, Inc. So it's I-N-D sites. So I, I use the first three initials there for Indsight instead of Insight. Pretty cool. <laughs> I I've had that for a few. Yeah. So, and, the, and I will be coming out with a video series, Insights for Embracing Life. Look for that. I'll put that out on my social media channels. And that, that'll be forthcoming here in the next uh, month. We'll get that series out. And that's kind of in concert with the launch of the audiobook. I appreciate everybody's support of the book. Uh, there's lessons in there on life and love. And ultimately, it's about Gail and how tremendous her life was. And how her life made a difference, okay, in everything she did, in everything she touched, in everything she said, and in everything she did. Uh, she was always truthful to herself. And because of that, she inspired me to write the book. And um, I was glad I was able to do that. Thank you so much, Larry. I'm, I'm so inspired by you, by your story, by Gail. Even though I've never met her, I feel like I have. And so thank mm. you for sharing her beautiful energy. And her lessons. And, you know, I'll, I will always remember this story and we'll always be grateful to meet you and, and hear all your amazing experiences. So thank you so, so much. And I'm sure that all the audience and the listeners will all be interested in your story and love it just as much as I did. So thank you. 
Pam, thanks for having me on. It's been an honor and a privilege. And thank you for all the beautiful and impactful work you're doing with the Underdog Podcast and all the businesses you've created and all the people you've helped and guided in your young life and many, many great things ahead for you, I know. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode. <laughs>